Hi, this is Varun Haran, Associate Editor with Information Security Media Group in Asia. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Rob van der Ende, VP Asia Pacific and Japan at Mandian Consulting, a FireEye company. Rob here is going to be talking to us about something very interesting today. He's going to be talking about cyber espionage and its unlikely targets in the Asian region. Rob will walk us through some of the examples, the modus operandi of these actors and their likely motivations. He's also going to be sharing some recommendations on how practitioners can protect their organizations against these kinds of attacks. Hi Rob, thanks for joining me today. Good afternoon, Varun, and uh, it's a pleasure being here. Pleasure to have you on, Rob. First things first, let's set the stage here. What does the cyber espionage threat landscape look like today? What's going on out there? So we see espionage groups really uh, using the same technologies and techniques as we've seen in the more commercial or financial gain attack. But obviously the target audience is in most cases very different. What we see is in most cases here for espionage about countries, uh, nations, uh, but also you know, like R&D organizations, in some cases it very interesting defense system manufacturers purely for national gain to use that espionage information. But the techniques that are being used are pretty much the same. Okay, so you are seeing a lot of these industrial espionage, corporate to corporate kind of espionage also happening? That does appear. When we speak about uh, cyber espionage, I think that is a part of the observations we've made in our investigations. Obviously, I can't get into the specifics of the organization or governments we've been working with, but in general, I would say that we both are involved in investigations of business-to-business -business espionage, mostly about unique designs or R&D benefits that organizations are trying to take a step ahead on, as well as more politically motivated or geography-motivated espionage when it comes down to nation-states. Rob, when it comes to cyber espionage, the general understanding that I have, for instance, is that it's usually conducted by nation-state actors with a lot of resources at their disposal. Now, if you're saying there's a lot of business-to-business -business espionage happening as well, what has happened that has changed the scenario that makes that possible? I think that there is still an interest, as there has been for many years, even before the cyber attacks started to become more prolific. There has always been some espionage, of course, an interest in stealing designs or patents around specific new innovative designs. So that is still happening. But as you already concluded before, and what we are still seeing happen in the majority of cases, these are typically nation-state attacks. And even nation-state attacks into commercial organizations, such as I mentioned the example of uh, some defense system manufacturers that are, of course, assisting a specific government to make really, really interesting advances and really skip a lot of that R&D investment and time in order to achieve the same kinds of outcome as other organizations or countries have. But as you correctly stated, the level of cyber espionage that is currently happening is still predominantly done by nation states. So Rob, why don't you give me a few examples of these kinds of attacks? What can you share with me without taking any names? What are some unique methods that you see these threat actors have used? Yeah, so uh, yeah, a good example, uh, for instance, is uh, again, we're talking uh, here from, uh, from my visibility of, of Asia Pacific. Um, so when we talk about industrial espionage or, or, or R&D uh, design uh, theft, uh, good examples are happening where we see um, you know, suspected China-based actors uh, very keen on, um, on, on, on capturing information about uh, new chips designs, for instance, from uh, manufacturers in, uh, in Taiwan. Uh, or in Japan, uh, and in some cases also from uh, Southeast Asian countries, where those manufacturers have spent you know, tons of time and, um, and, and, and investment dollars into uh, new chip designs, um, and where these, uh, these organizations get hacked uh, multiple times. Um, another good example would be um, you know, like an aerospace uh, uh, or defense system manufacturers, which I uh, sort of uh, highlighted before, uh, where you know, like fairly advanced designs for, uh, for new uh, uh, fighter jets or, or, or similar uh, airplanes 
um, have been uh, have been confiscated, and uh, and then later on, when uh, those planes are being released to the market and, uh, and the first countries are buying them, we see uh, very similar-looking uh, and almost copycat uh, designs appearing in the uh, in, in the China market uh, from their military. So, uh, a very obviously and, and almost uh, jokingly and, and laughable uh, examples, but but they still uh, highlight the uh, the fact that uh, cyber espionage is, uh, is 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 very current and very active. But Rob, these are the obvious targets. They have strategic value and IP that's being pilfered. But apart from this, what are some targets that are very unlikely and that even surprise you as a researcher in this field? Yeah, look, and I think that it's not the end goal of what we're seeing the unlikeliness in. I think the unlikeliness is really what we have observed in that the channel being used to actually get to those organizations. The obvious organizations are the end targets to find that information, but accessing those because of the security measures they have put in place, it's actually far much easier as we have found through the indirect channel as we call it. So think about the trusted supplier relationships that those organizations or those governments have with, with many organizations. Um, vendors of, of particular uh, componentry uh, when it comes down to uh, manufacturers, uh, when it comes down to uh, maybe uh, IT service providers who have very close and trusted relationship and direct access to the end organization's network. Uh, that's where some of that unlikeliness is starting to become more prolific. Another channel which is very important is, for instance, the media. Trying to use the media to create lure information into uh, into nation states where the uh, the targeted organizations will obviously be, uh, you know, like opening documents or news articles. Sometimes even things that are being sent out as being under embargo. Obviously, for highly politically sensitive topics such as border disputes or anything the like. And then we see those organizations being the channels, and and those are of course the very unlikely channels being used in cyber espionage. So what you're saying is the partner ecosystems and the third parties that Asian organizations traditionally rely upon and increasingly rely upon are being tabbed into for this kind of activity. Indeed, Varun, that's, that's exactly what is happening. So, And we see that actually happening far more prolific over the last few years. And before that, it was direct attacks to the target organization, whether that's another government or, as I said, uh, you know, system manufacturers or R&D. Nowadays, with the defenses that they put up and, uh, and the increased security, we see these weaker links, if you will, in that indirect channel being targeted. And again, this is still something that uh, surprises both the end targets as well as the market in general. Specifically in terms of the third party and the partner ecosystem, what are some things that practitioners can look at doing to ensure that they don't become victims of these kinds of attacks? So there's two ways of looking at this. Faroon, uh, what we advise any organization to do, whether they are a potential uh, targeted victim for cyber espionage or other cyber crime, or they could be a, an intermediary in that process. We, of course, recommend every organization to really put up its own defenses. And that means no longer necessarily relying on the old view of security, the old view being building bigger and thicker walls to prevent any attackers from coming in. But really, as we've seen from all of our investigations and as we reported in our recently released entrance report, we have seen that um, you know, the attackers will still get in. So no matter how much investment you make into security products and security firewalls and the like, attackers will still find ways to get in without uh, necessarily being detected by those uh, defenses. And that's why we recommend those organizations to really put up defenses in a way that they are focusing on detection capability rather than protection or prevention and really take an assumed breach position. And what that means is that you know, like when you assume that the attacker will get in one way or another, to really start being able to have your organization respond to that potential breach, hunt for 
that attacker if there is any kind of indicator of compromise occurring in your network. And if you can do that yourself, of course, you know, work with organizations to assist you in that process or to actually help you build that capability to move from you know, like more defensive capabilities to, to detection capabilities and build response capabilities on top of that as well. It strikes me that if you were an organization that harbored a lot of IP, you would be one of the obvious targets and you would know where to kind of focus your efforts on. You'll know what your crown jewels are. But if you're an organization that is perhaps being used as a conduit in these kinds of attacks, what are some of the ways in which you can determine what the motivations of these attackers might be? Because traditionally organizations in this region have been dependent on a perimeter-driven approach and they aren't very well equipped to deal with these kinds of sophisticated attacks. Yeah. So if these organizations are knowingly targeted as a, an indirect channel or as a conduit into a, a higher value target, such as a defense systems manufacturer or such as a government organization, that would expect its its trusted supplier relationships to be uh, complying with uh, you know, certain security expectations or rules and standards that they've set. And again, when we get involved with these and we highlight the actual weaknesses of, of trusted supplier relationships, mostly electronic connections directly into the network, not even in the old days where we had to dial in and establish a connection, but real online uh, access with either customer data because they're a service provider or even supplier data directly into that network and really help both the, the untargeted victim and the conduit protecting themselves and, and put up security measures that are, are much more able to provide that resilience against these type of attacks. Rob, let me conclude with this question from your vantage point. Where do you see the cyber espionage landscape in this region heading? Share with me some predictions that practitioners can watch out for and prepare for perhaps. I would say that we will still see further proliferation of this behavior. Just to give you a data point, you know, we know that there is more than 50 countries worldwide that have established offensive capabilities in cyberspace. Not all of them necessarily used for cyberspionage, but it's highly likely that they have this capability uh, to at some point in time turn that into espionage rather than just uh, cybercrime or financial gain. China is still the most prolific in, in, in everything that we find in all of the things that we report upon. Uh, but as an example, we have uh, increased increasingly seen uh, North Korea as being attributed as an actor in more and more cases. Probably with a, a slightly lesser developed sophistication and capability than China, maybe because they have been at it more recently, but they have certainly been reputed in the media and in the public domain as an actor to be reckoned with. And then you'll see the smaller organizations, I would say uh, some Southeast Asian countries are, are building that capability, uh, but they are as well responding to the amount of attacks that actually happen to those nations. So there you have it, a, a little bit of an insight into where we see some uh, developments, uh, but I would say that the landscape is still pretty much uh, the same as it's been over the last few years. You know, as a corollary to what we've been speaking about, about how organizations have traditionally had this legacy mindset of being very perimeter-driven, uh, do you see that changing? Or is, is that shift to a more detect and remediate uh, kind of a strategy happening in organizations? It certainly is, Varun. We've been fortunately involved with organizations that have had a chance to listen to advice and take our recommendations after we've helped them respond to an incident or after they responded to the incident and they've asked us for a forward-looking view on how to better protect themselves, how to better establish capability and, and ultimately build a, a stronger resilience. So it is happening. Uh, is it happening quick enough? Is it happening fast enough? I would certainly say no, no, we believe that's not the case. We can do much more as an industry to prepare ourselves against 
against these type of attacks, but it is happening. And I think that the, the realization is setting in that organizations will still get breached. Uh, the realization is setting in. So people are, are naturally coming to grips with it and saying, hey, we've invested all this money in our perimeter defenses. Now, what do we do next? And that's where we typically play roles with our customers and help them move from a, um, like a, a, a protection or prevention attitude to a, a far much more uh, detective capability and, uh, and a stronger resilience. Right, Rob, thank you for speaking to me today. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure as well, Varun, and uh, look forward to speak to you again. That was Rob van der Ende, who is Vice President Asia Pacific and Japan at Mandian Consulting, a FireEye company. For ISMG in Asia, this is Varun Haran. Thanks for listening.